This is Reset. I'm Esther Yunji Kang in for Sasha Ann Simons. Fried food and casseroles. When you think of Midwest cuisine, it's hard not to picture just that. But Midwestern food is so much more than just a green bean casserole or food from a can. At least that's the message Chef Paul Fairbach of Big Jones Restaurant is trying to send in his new book, Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. He says it's dozens of jellies, pickles, breads, and more that are distinct from those found in other parts of the country and that the Midwest actually has contributed to American cuisine at large and deserves its recognition. He joins us now. Hey, Chef Paul. Welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me, Esther. So, Chef, I understand that this book began as a personal journey of sorts. Uh, it was kind of a, a way to connect to your family's recipes and, and history. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. As I was growing up, I was experiencing a lot of these foodways that my family had had for generations, but also recognizing that they were disappearing. Or at the time, I didn't recognize they were disappearing. But as, a, as I got older, I sort of realized that you know, my uncle Lee that still did hog killings wasn't going to be doing them forever. My grandpa had stopped making his wild cherry and blackberry wine every summer years before. Um, my Aunt Rita, who was the master home cook, the best home cook I've ever known in my life, was uh, getting old. My mom was getting old, and she had a lot of these, like, German-rooted uh, cakes that she'd learned from dad's mom from my grandma, um, Kuchen and Stolen and things like that that she would make. And these things would be would be disappearing or at least changing. And I wanted to document what we had. And it sort of grew into a project where I documented what we have, but also we ponder a little bit where foodways might be going or what we might be eating in the future as well. And you're from the Midwest, is that correct? Yeah, I grew up in southern Indiana, which is kind of border country. Um, and uh, so near the Ohio River Valley, uh, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Louisville were very influential cities in, in what we ate there. Got it. You know, before we get into your book, can you talk a little bit more about Midwest food myths? You know, what do people get wrong about the food from this area? Well, people think about Midwestern food, and it's nowadays I think it's uh, fried food, obviously meat, potatoes, and ranch dressing. Like that's what they think mm -hmm. of as and I love all of those things. And I think most, most Midwesterners love all of those things. But there's so much more to it. I think the thing that a lot of people miss, and it's right under our noses, and it's everywhere, is the pizza culture here mm. is really fascinating and diverse. Um, from Detroit to St. Louis and from Minneapolis to the Quad Cities and and Cincinnati and everywhere in between, there's, there's five distinct regional pizza styles at least. Mm. And then a lot of those have, you know, sort of sub-regional or, or local styles. And every town in the Midwest has a great little local pizzeria that's been doing it for years and years and years. And it's usually you can only find that particular style of pizza there. Mm. Um, and that's just one example. Um, but you know, there's chili in Cincinnati. There's Booyah in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin's a great state to have hamburgers. That, that I guess, is quintessentially... Midwestern, but every town has a local butcher shop, and they're using local they're using local meat. And every town has a a bakery, and they're using 
uh, that those local buns with that local meat, and you're having a burger experience you can only get in that in that town. Those those flavors. You, you talk about a lot of these great things like the pizza culture, the burger culture. Um, but before we get into that, can we talk a little bit more about those myths and and sort of the the jokes, right? The the food in the Midwest has often been reduced to to casseroles and. It's become the butt of jokes. What do you What do you think led to that? I know you talk a little bit in your book about um, sort of a, a east a coastal sort of poo pooing of of this culture. Can you tell us about that? You could definitely call it coastal elitism. Is cast upon the Midwest a lot, and that's a common th- theme. I think that you hear from everybody who lives in the between lands in in the United States. People in the South have felt the same thing for years. And it's it's really um, a very narrow-minded view of what happens in the Midwest. I mean, if all you ever do is fly over it, I guess, um, <laughs> then then that's all you see. But when you visit the Midwest and you travel through the, the various regions, what you see is a lot of cultural richness. Um, the reality is, though, too, that there is some grain of truth in those stereotypes because for most of the Midwest's history— um, it was settled a little bit later than, than particularly the East Coast, uh, but also the South. Uh, the Midwest was largely settled by people coming in and settling the industrial cities as America industrialized. So it was the, you know, the 19th century into the 20th century was when there was this boom in the cities. And we were working. I mean, we were working our butts off, uh, putting people in cars, putting people in homes, and uh, feeding people um, from the grain belt um, and, you know, all of the corn and soybean fields and, and the great productivity of the cattle ranches and the meat packers. And so this industry grew up and we were busy. And so things like casseroles uh, became a, a, a real reality for workaday folks in our homes because when you have a two-earner household and you have kids in school – uh, and you have these new technologies of mass-produced ground beef, which which made it cheap, and it, because it used to be an expensive luxury food that only rich people could afford. Um, but you have uh, frozen vegetables, and you have uh, starches being grown and produced in mass that you could just throw those in a in a pot or in a pan and put them in the oven and forget about them for an hour while you did your chores or and work. Uh, homework and those types of things and come back to it a little bit later and you have all four food groups as we knew nutrition at the time <laughs> in one dish. So those things happened and you know the American fast food culture came out of the Midwest as well, uh, love it or hate it, but it's again that reality of busy work a day folks only having a few minutes for lunch. Um, and so cafes, you know the, the the main street cafes became very important serving simple, um, affordable lunches, and you have things like the the chili in Cincinnati, hot dogs, uh, hamburgers. These types of things sort of sprung up in in the local cafes, the horseshoe sandwich in in um, in Springfield, and so you have this great diversity of working man's foods, working people's foods that sort of sprang up out of this work culture that we had. It sounds like you have respect for the humble casserole. I mean, do you like to eat it yourself or? 
Yeah, I mean, I have a soft spot for it, but like I have always liked pretty much almost any kind of food that I could eat. <laughs> and my mom used to make this. People who know this dish will probably um, either get really excited or, or, or get despondent that my mom used to make the, the tuna noodle casserole, which is like one of the quintessential hot dish casseroles. And like I, that's still like my, my favorite thing. I make it about once a year just to, <laughs> just to kind of experience it again in person. I'm sure you spice it up and make it much better than the original, or is it just... Actually, I don't. I think a lot of foods are best left alone, and I try to do that in the book as well, Mm. that I want to let the recipes tell their own story. I don't want to... I can certainly tell the story, but I don't want to put my own Mm. color on it or or shade it um, based on my own conceptions about what it should be. I think that the, the story of Midwestern food is really compelling and powerful, and I think it's best to just let the recipes speak for themselves. Oh, I like that. You, you mentioned corn, and in the intro you write that corn was co-opted from indigenous cultures. Say more. You know, what was, what was lost? What would this region be without uh, sweet corn? I mean, the, the stories of, you know, mom running out to the garden and getting a bunch of ears of corn and then running back to the kitchen. You know, you have the, the water boiling already before you even go out to the garden mm-hmm. and running back to the kitchen. You know, that's a, that's a story that people like to tell. And, you know, as an experienced chef, I don't think it makes much of a difference as to how delicious a sweet corn is, how fast you get it into the pot. But, you know, we wouldn't have any of those, th- those stories. And like a, a lot of our culture and comes from indigenous food ways. Um, and I don't, but the thing is, we don't really know to a large extent what was lost, and that's really the the, the sad thing about it. Um, when you look at uh, colonization of North America and the genocide that happened, uh, it was really fast and really brutal. And the Midwest was probably the most exclusive part of the Midwest. Like, they wanted the First Nations out. Um, and so you don't find a lot of First Nations in the Midwest uh, to this day, although you see some. And I talk about um, some of the, the First Nations chefs and cooks that are writing and, and cooking in the Midwest now that are sort of piecing back together their food ways, the most famous of which is Sean Sherman in Minneapolis. His, his um, restaurant in Omni, if you get a chance to go there, you have to go there. But the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen is a, is a wonderful book, which in addition to Midwestern food, everyone should buy and begin to understand uh, the First Nations food ways. And you can just sort of in these books where he only uses pre-Columbian ingredients, you start to realize, wow, almost everything that we eat was already here mm-hmm. and was developed to some extent by the First Nations cultures that already lived here. And we just sort of pushed them aside and you know, yeah, we have a lot of great ingredients, but in terms of techniques, we've lost a lot. Another one of my favorite ones is the practice of cooking dried sweet corn and dried cranberries or dried blueberries mm-hmm. together, which kind of became a really hot chef thing in the, in the 2000s and the oh. aughts. And I'm just like, you know, the, the Menominee were doing mm-hmm. this, you know, for a thousand years or 2000 years, who knows how long they were doing it. And, you know, now we're, you know, lauding, you know, some white chef for coming up with this mm-hmm. technique of cooking sweet corn and berries together. And it's like, actually, that's, you know, a quintessential Native American food way. 
you know, people love to debate what is and what is not Midwest, and no one can seem to agree on Ohio. So what definition are you using when exploring the regional cuisine? I believe what in the beginning of the book, when I started piecing together what is the Midwest, one of the books that I looked at was a book called The Eastern Heartland by the Old Time Life series from uh, – from the 1960s, and James Beard actually edited it. The you know famous food writer. There's a a very important foundation in his name. He talks about how a, a shared heritage or a shared um, story of national origin is really important to building cohesiveness of a region, and that's a really difficult and kind of a loaded way of looking at it because the Midwest. While it is maybe the most Eurocentric region of the United States, it's still 26% non-white. So it's a very diverse province. And there are immigrants from all over the world at this point. Um, but we have uh, African-American and Latino populations, primarily in the cities, um, who are all part of the Midwest. So how do you define it? And I think what really defines it, and I looked at it uh, at, on the census website going through and just by ethnic group, um, by, by national origin, by age, all, every measure I could think of to, to apply all of these different filters and find out what sort of defines the Midwest. And it turns out you could take German national origin and literally it's like putting a stencil over the Midwest and drawing a picture mm -hmm. of the density of people of German national origin. So parts of the Midwest Kansas and Nebraska, particularly, are over 40% people of German national origin. The Midwest as a, as a whole is about 25%, whereas the rest of the country as a whole is less than 10%. So it's a really strong cultural influence here. Um, and then there's – this is a, sort of applies to the country cooking aspect of, the, of Midwestern cuisine, which is one of the fascinating things about Midwestern cuisine is urban and industry, and, but also the country cooking – there's this real dichotomy going on is that there's, you know, these these Anabaptist religious sects, the Amish and Mennonites, which people in small towns and people in the countryside sort of idealize as, you know, the very ideal of simple, um, wholesome country cooking, old fashioned, um, old-fashioned food, old-fashioned arts and crafts, and it's sort of this real identifying factor for a lot of people in the rural Midwest in terms of idealizing what our culture is. And so I thought that where those groups are located, you could probably indicate that influence on the, on the people, you know, in those areas, on the non- Amish and non-Mennonite people in those areas. And it turns out that what we're actually doing is sort of projecting what we idealize back onto the Amish and Mennonite people because a lot of the foods that we associate with Amish and Mennonite people are not Amish and Mennonite mm. foods. They're actually, you know, German-American foods particularly um, or an Americanized food that we sort of want to think of as old-fashioned wholesome. So we sort of project it back onto the Amish and Mennonites. But you can actually look at where the, these settlements are, and it's upstate New York and upstate Pennsylvania, which which also sort of dovetails with that density of people of German national origin, and all the way up into the Dakotas and over into Missouri. 
And that sort of really, to me, defined our region. And then the cities are kind of a completely different thing altogether. They're very, very diverse. You have such a wealth of knowledge. It sounds like you did pretty extensive research for this book reading hundreds of cookbooks, thousands of articles, and, and actually traversing a wide swath of the, of the country, visiting restaurants and bakeries. You use a three-generation rule to, to help guide what does and does not make it into this book. How did you settle on that rule? That's actually a really good question. And I wanted to say that I wanted a food that I defined as Midwestern to have staying power here. And so if, if it was going to be something that came here as a dish um, of its own and sort of stayed the same, it had to be here for at least three generations. And to me that says, you know, the immigrants brought it, their first generation grew up with it still in their home, and then maybe their kids still had it. But it also meant at that point it was becoming diluted and but and adopted then by the macro culture or the wider culture. Um, and a really good example of that is fried chicken. It came to the Midwest in, in, in two waves. It came from Germany, and it also came from the South with African Americans. And so, in, but in both cases, you have, it's been here for, for more than three generations. And it's, fried chicken has changed, but it's still more or less the same thing that it was, you know, in Germany 500 years ago. Um, so that's one example of that. But I also said, you know, well, what if a food evolved uniquely here? And pizza is a really good example of that. You know, you're not going to find Detroit style pizza or anything like it anywhere in Italy. Um, it evolved here and it's Detroit style pizza was invented in the early 50s or late 60s. So it's only been around for about 70 years. But it, it is distinctively Midwestern because it was invented here. Okay, back up a little bit here. We need to talk about fried chicken. I mean, there were some surprising claims in the book, and you just mentioned that, that fried chicken is actually from the Midwest. And before that, it was an old recipe from Germany. What are you talking about? I mean, I think I, I say that the, the fried chicken is from the Midwest, but it's also from the South. I think people need to understand <laughs> that, that Germans came to the United States as early as Jamestown and scattered through the colonies very early. But our experience, and certainly in my hometown where I grew up with it, and this is one of the things that really drove me to write this book was to get a lot of these stories about where American food came from, not mm -hmm. just Midwestern food. Because Midwestern food, I always thought of fried chicken as Midwestern food, and mm -hmm. or, or at least it's what I grew up with, and I grew up in the Midwest. And if you go back to my hometown where everybody is from, literally for six generations, is from these two little towns in Baden in southwest Germany. You ask anybody, what, you know, where's fried chicken from? They say, oh, that's a German dish. The Germans, wow. fry, the Germans fry everything. And so when I w wanted to talk about that in the book, and I wanted to include fried chicken in a book about Midwestern food, which I knew might turn some heads, yeah. I had to come with receipts. And so I looked into the German literature and – what we found was that the Germans were all over fried chicken, you know, all the way back into the 13th century. And, you know, in the 17th and 18th century, it explodes in German cookbooks right at the time when Germans are emigrating here. 
And so it's it explains why towns like Jasper, Indiana and New Alsace, Indiana have these really strong fried chicken cultures, even though the towns are, you know, white as day and not populated by people from the mm. south. They're people who came directly from Germany where fried chicken was was a very celebrated dish in the 19th century. You talked about chicken just now. Now let's talk about hot dog. You say the hot dog also comes from here. Say more. You know, the hot dog came from Germany as well. Um, there's the Frankfurter, and which is the, the town Frankfurt, and there's also the Wienerwurst, the, the Vienna sausage. And David Berg is the oldest record I could find of a company that was mass producing. And this is 1866, I think, off the top of my head, in Chicago that was mass producing hot dogs. But hot dogs are a really interesting story, like, like hamburgers are, in that you used to have to chop all of this meat by hand. And it's an emulsified sausage, which is how you get that fine texture. So you have to beat the crap out of it to, to really refine and turn the meat into this fine paste. And then you have to stuff it into these little casings and cook it. So um, for most of their existence, these sausages were extremely expensive foods that only wealthy people could afford. And in fact, I cite a recipe for Wienerwurst in the book that is made from uh, beef loin, filet mignon, and, and speck, uh, pork belly. So you can imagine that being a very expensive sausage. And it was in the, in the meatpacking houses of Chicago that hot dogs were then transformed as mechanical meat choppers extruders um, and the mixing machines that could emulsify the sausages that automated that process and turned what was once an extremely expensive food that only rich people could afford into something that was extremely cheap and could be put on the mass market. And, um, you know, the oldest record we have of somebody mass producing that type of sausage um, is David Berg in Chicago in, in, in the late 1860s. Speaking of sausage, the producer who worked on this segment grew up in Cincinnati and loved hearing all the references to food from that city. There is obviously the chili that you mentioned, but you also described getta. It's a mix of meat, uh, often awful, uh, mixed with grain, usually oats. She says you described the texture perfectly. Let's have you read a passage from the book. Sure. I love Geta too. So this is, this is fun. I had a, a lot of fun writing this passage. If you've never tried Geta, put it on your bucket list now. Of all the peasant meat and grain quasi sausages we have, this one may be the best if you like toasty whole grain flavors. At worst, it rivals Cajun boudin as a meat stretcher. Be sure to give it a hard sear, preferably in coffee can grease, bacon grease, or beef drippings. The way the oats crisp up around the edges and toast all over is everything. Mm. The pearlescent texture of the oats, a surf's caviar, mingles with bits of well-cooked meat to do a tactile two-step on your palate, while heady aromas of toasted whole grain and meat waft about your head. <laughs> wow. I love that. That actually sounds delicious. And Get it? Is of, that good? Yeah, it sounds uh, hearty. It is hearty. Um it was uh, Geta's one of those things that goes all the way back to Germany, a sausage called Grützewurst. Mm. Um, they have it in Minnesota, too, in some small towns. But it's, you know, you take meat and you want to stretch it, so you mix it with grain. The Cajuns do it with boudin in the southeast. They do it with uh, cornmeal to make liver mush. Um, and in Cincinnati, they do it with pinhead oats to make Geta. 
Sounds awesome. What um, has been the reception uh, to this book like so far? It's been good. I'm excited to, uh, to get it in more hands. Um, everybody should get it and read it. And um, everybody that I know who's read it has had really good things to say because everybody finds something that they identify with. Um, people back in my hometown love seeing recipes for <laughs> oddball dumplings like Kniffleys. Nobody's ever heard of Kniffleys outside of my hometown. Um, people from Cincinnati love hearing, love reading about uh, Geta or, um, or the chili. Uh, people from St. Louis love reading about toasted ravioli and the pizza there, which I love. And, you know, St. Louis pizza is kind of misunderstood and maligned in the same way that Cincinnati chili is. And again, I think that's the closed minds of the coast. When you understand the cultural significance and context of these foods, they're really powerful. That's Paul Farabach, chef of Big Jones Restaurant and author of Midwestern Food, A Chef's Guide to the Surprising History of a Great American Cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you, Esther.